0: Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to take us today through a theme that's been showing up repeatedly in your work lately, namely the sort of decline of Europe and the warning signs that it presents for the United States. And starting this off with a quote from a recent column of yours – Quote, after suffering serial terrorist attacks from foreign nationals and immigrants, a normal nation state would be expected to make extraordinary efforts to close its borders and redefine its foreign policy in order to protect its national interests. But a France or a Belgium is not quite a sovereign nation anymore and thus does not have complete control over its national destiny or foreign relations, close quote. Explain what you mean there.
1: Well, under the – protocols of the european union no country is really sovereign in a a number of issues one of it is independent foreign policy to the extent that they were before the european union and, and immigration law especially so it's an open borders system between countries and if one country experiences more unwelcome immigration than the other it doesn't have any choice and it can't either internally protect its borders or it can't Even if it had the military heft, it it cannot legally or according to the protocols of the EU go out and address a problem overseas, i.e. go to the Middle East or do something. So they're kind of stuck. And um, when you combine that with this entitlement and demographic problem of a a shrinking and aging population and chronic serial budget deficits – and then you add in the fact that they're not even spending 2% GDP on their own defense, then you start to see that the building blocks of the civilization, population, fiscal policy, defense, immigration, sovereignty, they're they're not favorable. It's sort of a warning to us here in the United States, I think. I
0: want to linger on that immigration point for a moment. There is a sense in some precincts of the West today – that immigration is just simply a matter of openness. You're either welcoming to outsiders or you're not. You've argued, though, that it involves a lot more variables. I'm quoting you again here. Europe lacks the ingredients necessary to assimilate, integrate, and intermarry large numbers of newcomers each year. What are those ingredients, Victor?
1: Well, it's very hard to do so when you have a hereditary class system. In other words, when money is not the barometer of success – so here in the United States, if somebody comes from Ecuador and he he opens a chain of 7-Eleven stores, he can be on the board of Stanford University pretty soon if he makes enough money. I don't think you really can do that in Europe to the same extent. In other words, social acceptance does not follow from uh, financial success and money's a lot more liquid than his birth. Uh, somebody like Condoleezza Rice, I doubt, wouldn't be a foreign minister in, in Germany or France. They have more of a racial protocol among the elite. So they just haven't had uh, experience other than the colonial experience, which was asymmetrical with, with immigrants the way we have. So they're very, I think they're wise not to let in a lot of people en masse in one big influx that are from the so-called third world. And some people – didn't heed that that wisdom, and now they're paying for it. They're not c- equipped to do that. It's hard for anybody, uh, but we could salvage something out of it more than they
0: could. There's another interesting notion running through your writing on the immigration topic that I want to tease out here because in both the European and the American context, you argue – and correct me if you think I'm overstating this – but that the political left – finds it useful to bring in downscale immigrants because they can use them to argue that there are fundamental inequities in in Western societies. That, is that a fair distillation of the argument?
1: Yeah, I think about 1980, the existential questions in the West were largely solved. I mean by that I mean workers', workers compensation, disability insurance, old-age pensions, Social Security, uh, accessible health care, minimum wages – on employment insurance. And so what we saw after that was not efforts to ensure a quality of opportunity but to ensure an equality of result. And that made it controversial because it it was harder to do. And so in the so-called Reagan Thatcher era the left was sort of on the defensive and one way the labor party as we know now explicitly said that. I think people whether it was the 1965 immigration law by Teddy Kennedy or the people who we behind the 86 Simpson-Mazzoli, including Reagan. They, I think he was naive about it, but they said they wanted a new demographic. And it's no accident that 90% of our immigrants are from areas in the world that are very poor. And when they come here, um, they're an, a logical constituency for a party that would promise them rapid equality in every manifestation economic equality social equality and that can only be accomplished by massive government higher taxes more bureaucracies and then of course the tip-off to that is if you're unsure of whether that's what they're actually doing the key that unlocks the that unlocks the puzzle is immigration legal immigration illegal and they blur that word legal and illegal um so they, they outlaw words like illegal aliens. So the people who are coming into Europe are usually doing without legal sanction. And the people coming across the border from into the United States from Central America are not legal or, for the most part. And that's because they serve a political demographic need on the part of a democratic party that otherwise I don't think its agenda would be appealing to the majority of Americans anymore.
0: And on the demographic question, in the European context, the falling birth rates are always a part of that argument. And You wrote on this topic recently, quoting again, demographic implosion is an old and trite observation, but more curious is the reason why Europe is shrinking, the classic and primary symptom of a civilization in rapid decline. Okay, Victor, take us through the why.
1: Well, it's also true here in the United States, and we know now that – the criteria that foster childlessness, and that is uh, a lack of re- religious observation, or a belief—at least a belief—in a lack of transcendence. So, if you don't believe there's something hereafter, then you are more likely to want to satisfy your appetites in the here and now. Given an affluence, so if you've got more money than you've ever uh, dreamed of, and uh, and that's mostly uh, the American upper middle class, then. The idea that you would want to miss out on going to the beach, or miss out on a vacation, or miss out on a Beamer, or miss out on a, a granite counter to have a child or two children, or, or be up all night with diapers, is not as attractive as it once was. And this is aside from the issue of labor. You know, I grew up on a farm where child raising was a a wise agricultural move to get labor, but we're a suburban society now where that that facet doesn't exist, and then. There's no compact anymore when you have a socialist state. The Greek idea that you change your child's diapers, then he changes yours when you're 80, that's just irrelevant now because we feel the state will come in and take care of us when we're older, and that's not a private matter anymore. We have rest homes now. We have all of this uh, Medicare, Cal, Medicare. And so there's no practical need to have a close-knit large family anymore psychologically emotionally practically and all of that is i think so it's mostly a affluence the feminist movement the idea that women uh at least the an element of feminist leadership believes that having children providing a stable home being sort of the brains and muscle of the family the the, the bulwark is a trite occupation and it's not rewarding emotionally financially intellectually so put all that together and you're having european and american children getting married in their middle 30s late 30s having one child maybe maybe not getting married and having a child and demographically that's not going to get you 2.2 children and a stable population
0: base in some of your recent work you compare the uh, decadence of present day europe to an ancient text petronius's croton draw out the parallels there for the audience
1: well petronius wrote somewhere in the age of nero in the 60s ad and he was he, he wrote a novel of decadence but beneath the decadence there were certain messages and that is that roman elites had so much money coming in from this global empire that they didn't really know how to spend it all. So they were experimenting with different types of sexuality, uh, food, uh, architecture. And the word he uses a lot is luxus or decadence. And there was one as a metaphor of that. He has a town where nobody really works because it's a croton is uh, down near the boot of Italy and it's a resort town. So it's a quid pro quo or mutually exploitive society where older people go there and they're swarmed by the residents uh, in hopes of being their heir- declared their heir. And some of the older people that go there, they fake illnesses, they cough, they claim they don't have any children because these people will do anything for them. They will bring their daughters for sex. They will give them free food. And so it's kind of a con between... Them wanting genuine uh, childless wealthy people in their 50s to come to Croton versus people in their 50s who have children and have no money at all and can fake tuberculosis cough and then get free stuff. So it's kind of a parable on what Roman society has become.
0: Should we regard this kind of societal decline as – is this an inevitable byproduct of affluence? In in all places in time, should we expect that if you reach a certain threshold financially, there's going to be a certain softening of society?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think – I wish – I mean people far smarter than me, whether it's Plato or Aristotle or even the German nihilists like Nietzsche or Hegel or Spengler – They all saw something there that when life doesn't become elemental or there's not a challenge or you're not building a a business for your children or you're not planting an orchard that won't come into production until you're dead or you're not adding a porch onto a house that your grandchildren are going to – that people are not necessarily uh, responsible individuals. That they will spend that time and money and labor and capital on indulgence rather than investment. And you can see that through a variety of barometers. Um, Here in the United States, you can see it with the collective annual deficit or the aggregate national debt or the pension systems that are insolvent. But they all reflect a common denominator that people would rather spend now um, than save for later on and for their children or for their um, subsequent generations.
0: So my final question for you then, the sort of big picture one I guess, is Europe right now the United States just on fast forward or is there a good reason to suppose that the US may not be inevitably on the same trajectory as the continent?
1: Well, we were different because we were a multiracial society. We had no class system. We had a huge frontier and we were uh, equal opportunity can-do society. That was our ethos, that we're not going to try to be peasants in Europe that revolt against their their landlords. We're not going to have Bismarck social net and all that stuff. We're just going to be out, let people go out and make money in this big country, and they're going to make so much money, and they're going to make it so innovative that everybody's going to have something. And I think that's not so true anymore, especially as we have these postmodern the environmental movement that takes irrigation water away from agriculture loses jobs puts it out in the ocean for a bait for the survival of a bait fish or we we have sanctuary cities where we can't even arrest somebody who's a five-time deported felon whatever it is you get the sense that that mystique or that challenge or that getting up in the morning and wanting to doing something unique or building a dam or building a big building or that that's just not it now it's let's refine it let's critique it let's uh ensure it let let's invest in it but it's not it's not the idea of materially building something and, and there's a lack of uh confidence in the culture or excitement you can see that i think that's part of the appeal for someone that the elites for good grounds think is on hinge of Donald Trump is that he actually builds something. At least he he goes to a place and says, there's a hole in the ground. I'm going to build this big Trump tower. I'm going to put my name on it. And for a lot of people in the lower middle classes, they, they think this is the guy who will get the coal mines back working. This is a guy who get tough with the Chinese and let, make them buy our stuff that we actually make. And so there's a yearning for that. But there's a sense that I think that that age is over with and people don't like it. Or at least a lot of them don't. Some do, obviously, or we wouldn't be in it.
0: All right. That's the show for this week. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hansen.